All right. Good morning. Oh, what we got up there? Yeah. There's some fashion statements being made right there. I'll tell you what, why don't we go ahead and open up in a word of prayer and just ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy that just allows us to be able to come together and to be able to, uh, to just study your word, Lord, and to be able to proclaim it. I pray that you will give me um, your words, that I would proclaim them in a way that would honor you. And that, Lord, all of our hearts and minds would be open to what you would have us learn today. We thank you, we praise you, and we do ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to take you on a little journey back in time. For some of us, this journey may not be very pleasant. In fact, it may be flat-out nightmarish. For others, this journey may be very pleasant. It may stir within us memories of a day long gone when things were simpler and life wasn't nearly as complex as the times and the days that we find ourselves living in right now. This morning I'm going to take us all through a rather brief history of fashion. In particular, American fashion starting from about the 1920s up until about our current day. And since I know absolutely nothing about fashion... I have had to rely on numerous sources from the internet, so if I'm getting anything wrong or if there's something that I leave out from a particular era that you know should be there, just be gracious with me because I know nothing about fashion. All right, starting with the 1920s, we have the arrival of the Jazz Age and Prohibition. Women's skirts rose scandalously to the knees The waistline of dresses dipped to the hips and a look referred to as the flapper, not to be confused with the clapper, became very fashionable. Long pearl necklaces were worn in abundance, along with cloche hats, feathered headbands, and shift dresses. For men, we find pants that were tapered, coming in tightly at the ankles, Fedoras, which I had to look up as it's actually a type of hat, um, were also in style amongst the fashionable in addition to the pinstripe suit. Moving into the 30s, we find an era that was uh, heavily impacted by the Depression, but this did not stop, stop fashion from moving forward, especially when it came to the women folk. With many women needing to enter the workforce, business suits with square-shaped jackets and narrow skirts came on the scene. In addition, surrealist prints, bias-cut dresses, and puffed sleeves became the rage. The men saw little to no change in their clothing styles. Uh, With the majority of people poor and without work, uh, needless to say, it wasn't high on most men's priority list to be overly concerned with making a fashion statement. Which brings us to the 1940s. With men going off to war, many women and children did their parts to help in the war. The fashion for women was to be as conservative as possible so that extra material could be used to support the men at war. Dresses were made without cuffs, collars, buttons, or extravagances. In addition, wedges, the turban, siren suit, which was the original jumpsuit, peplums, and A-line skirts came into fashion. For men, their suits, previously a four-piece deal with vest, jacket, and two pairs of pants, turned into just a jacket and a pair of pants. The suits were usually broad-shouldered with wide lapels along with jackets sporting the double-breasted look. The zoot suit was a hallmark 
of this era. Then came the 50s. It was during this time period that uh, circle and poodle skirts came into being. Some of the more rebellious women wore tight-fitting calf-length pants called pedal pushers along with blouses. In addition, many women adorned their feet with saddle shoes, pumps, and ballet slippers. On the young men's side, tight Levi's, chinos, and a white or black tight shirt could be found in just about every closet along with the leather jacket. The footwear consisted of loafers or Converse shoes. Now come the 60s. And I can feel some of you starting to cringe as your mind races back to the fashion of that day. Remember, I told you that it might be a little nightmarish for some of you. This is where it begins. In this era, both girls and boys wore tight Levi's with the big bell bottoms that flared out wide at the knee. And decorations like patches, drawings, and fabrics were added as well. Some men wore leather vests with bare chests or T-shirts, while many of the women wore loose-fitting blouses of cotton, frequently patterned with intricate designs as well as flowerly, flowerly loose dresses. These were called peasant blouses. And if that wasn't enough, it is here that we also find miniskirts, baby doll dresses, Dr. Scholl clog sandals, flat boots, Poochy fabrics and Mondrian-inspired shift dresses being brought into the limelight, all of which sets the stage for the 70s. And this is where it gets scary for me <laughs> because I can remember some of these fashions. I was old enough to, uh, to bring in the disco era, and this is the era that uh, was pretty scary. In this, era, in this era, women's dresses were roughly and loose, usually stopping at the knee, some of the more popular items in this decade for women were hot pants, rah-rah skirts, tube tops, halter tops, one-shoulder dresses, coin purses that hung from the neck, and go-go boots. For the men, well, they still wore bell bottoms, but the, the fabric of the decade was, uh, was, was polyester, and acrylic, and lycra. Okay, it was not uncommon to find these pants uh, partnered with a solid color shirt, some gold chains, and a matching jacket. Platform shoes were big on the dance floor, and many of the shirt patterns were swirly and dizzying. The colors were oftentimes loud and clashing. Then along came the 80s. And the 80s were interesting in that it brought in two very different styles. The one style ruled the business world, especially with the women. Women's business suits had broader shoulders with the help of shoulder pads. For the most part, they resembled the suits of the 30s, except they came in much brighter colors, colors like yellows, blues, and, and pinks. The second fashion fad started with exercise. Exercise became really big in the 80s, and exercise clothes became totally acceptable to wear just about anywhere. And they were. They were bright, and they were worn practically you know, to any place, even restaurants and things like that. Lycra and spandex were big in this era, along with the neon colors. I can still remember some of those nasty neon green and pink-colored shirts and stuff. It was just, yeah, pretty gross. Leg warmers. Leg warmers were, uh, were a pretty big item there. And, uh, and the one-shoulder untucked shirt clinched with the large belt was a very common look for the ladies of the 80s. And then, uh, then came the 90s. The 90s was uh, kind of a mixed bag of a whole lot of different styles. Several decades became fashionable again with some slight modifications. The platform shoe made a bit of a comeback, showing up uh, in many shoes from sandals to tennis shoes. The color scheme of the 90s was dramatic or pastel, with the classic color being black. For men, 
The most significant area in the 1990s was the rise of the grunge influence, which saw men dressing in branded T-shirts, jeans, and leather boots or high-top Converse shoes. The late 1990s saw many revivals from previous decades, the mod of the 60s, the 70s color fad and later, the khaki period with dockers and cargo-style pants, and then the 2000s. Well, the 2000s are beyond defining for both men and women. What some might consider stylish, others consider absolutely ridiculous. It appears as if fashion is all about personal expression now. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things, there's no right or wrong. If something works for you, you go ahead and, and wear it. Just another example that you and I are finding ourselves living in a very postmodern society. Which brings us to the end of our American fashion history lesson. A lesson that I hope was not too nightmarish, but rather illuminating. Because as we have discovered, fashion is in a constant state of flux. What is thought to be stylish and acceptable in one area in one era is ridiculed and put to open shame in another, only, only to be brought up in another one yet again. Fashion is constantly changing and styles are constantly coming and going. And far too many people spend far too much time trying to keep up with the latest fashion trends. And they miss out. They miss out on what's really important. Like a moth that is drawn to the flame, they are drawn to a world that offers no consideration to the well-being of their souls. You and I are living in a culture that is absolutely and positively obsessed with the external. No longer does it matter if you are a good person per se. What matters is that you look good. You have to look good because that is what matters in today's culture. And that's not an easy thing to do if you stop and think about it because fashion is changing so radically nowadays that you may look good one week only to find yourself, you know, outdated the next. You know, some of you guys are getting those big bug eye sunglass things going. You're going to laugh at yourself in a few years when you look back at those things. <laughs> One man's opinion, but you know. But what if I told you that the Bible offers each of you a way in which you can always be in fashion, a way in which you can always make the right and appropriate fashion statement, no matter what the era, no matter what the latest trends. Would you be interested Would you listen attentively? Might you even jot down some notes? And what if I told you that this right and appropriate fashion statement would not only serve you well in this life, but that it would also be fashionable in the life to come? Would you be willing to wear it? Would you be willing to put on the garments that transcend time and bring true beauty and elegance to its wearers? This morning, we're going to learn of such garments as they appear in the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. But before we get into our text, I want to just kind of give you a little bit of background information so that we don't just kind of jump right into Colossians, but I want to give you a little bit of what's, what's going on uh, leading up to the verses that we're going to be covering. The book of Colossians can easily be broken into two sections. The first section is comprised of chapters 1 and 2. And the main thrust behind chapters 1 and 2 is all doctrine. Okay, it's all doctrine. For in those chapters, we're taught much about the person 
of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Bishop J.B. Lightfoot says this of the letter. He says, The doctrine of the person of Christ is here stated with greater precision and fullness than in any other of St. Paul's epistles. Now, the reason for this emphasis is centered around what was known as the Colossian heresy. And I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail regarding that. There's a whole lots of thoughts and opinions on it. But basically, um, what was happening is, was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ was under attack. And they were having trouble with him, the, the whole fleshly side of things. And so as a result, Paul attempts to, to plainly state the supremacy of Christ to make it perfectly clear who Christ was and is. Okay. So in Colossians 1:15 through 18 we're told this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. In addition, he tells us in Colossians 2, 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And again, Paul writes in Colossians 2, 9 through 10 concerning Christ, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Without question, Paul proclaims Christ as the one and only unique God-man. And as such, he charges us to place our faith and our trust in this God-man's perfect work and person. He says, look, this is Christ. This is who he is. This is everything you need to know about him so that you are not confused. And he lays that all out in these first two questions, these first two chapters. And then Acts 4.12 tells us about this person of Jesus Christ and his work. It says, for there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is it. He is the means that God the Father has made for sinful people like us to be made right with Him. And through trusting in His perfect work on that cross, His sinless life that was offered up in our behalf, you and I can enter into eternity to be with our Heavenly Father. But coming back to Colossians, having established the supremacy of Christ, Paul then goes on to tell the Colossians and us how these truths concerning Christ's supremacy are to impact in part how we live now. This, these truths about Christ are to influence our lives now. And so Paul wants to kind of clear things up for them. So he tells them in chapters 3 and 4, tells them about this new life, how they if they are in Christ, if they have trusted in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, that they have this new identity in Christ. And he goes on to explain how that looks. And if we are in Christ, we are commanded to set our mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, according to verse 2 in chapter 3. The reason that Paul offers for this is the fact that we have died to our old lives and our new lives are hidden in Christ. 
You see, that that old way that we once lived is no longer alive. It has been put to death. It died with Christ. So we are no longer those same people. We no longer follow that old manner of living because that is not who we are anymore. We are these these new creatures, these new people. We have this new identity. We are no longer ruled and governed by sin. We are now ruled and governed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. It no longer has its sway. It's no longer our master. We have died to sin and now we are alive in Christ. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, the problem is that far too many of us fail to live in light of who we are. We fail to live in light of the fact that we are these new creatures and we go back to our old manner of living. We kind of go back to how things were. Proverbs has a, a, a nasty picture of it, but it says, like a dog that returns to its vomit, so we return to our sin. And that's how it is. Even though we don't have to, we do because that's what we kind of know and we just kind of want to keep doing that and we forget That if we are in Christ, we don't have to go back to our sin. We don't have to obey its lusts and its desires. We have been set free from its domain and we are now identified with our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of this, Paul commands us. He doesn't just ask us. He commands us to put off or take off our old style of dress to consider it dead. Look, you were that way. It is dead now. If you were if you were into immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires and greed, which amounts to idolatry, it's dead. If you are in Christ, that is dead. It has been put off, put away. He commands us to rid ourselves of the old clothes that we once wore. He said, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. They're they're gone. That's not who you are anymore. That was who you were. Now you are in Christ. You are a new creature. And it's with this in mind that we're now ready to look at that which the Christian is to adorn himself with. Those clothes that are befitting to our new natures. Those precious garments that have been worn throughout the throughout all of the the ages of believers that have been redeemed, that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. These are the garments that they have worn and they are the garments that you and I are to put on as well. Follow along as we read from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now this morning, we're going to take a look at six virtues that every one of us that calls ourselves a follower of Christ are commanded to put on. But before we get into these six virtues, let me show you what it is that makes it possible for us to put on these six virtues. Notice the words that start off verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. I mean, really, if we wanted to, we could just kind of camp out here for the rest of the time. I mean, there is so much that is here that we just need to make sure we don't kind of just brush over. But that's maybe a sermon for another time. But, you know, that is just some great truth that is right there before us. As we look at those three terms that are come together there, we find that all three were used to describe the people of Israel in the Old Testament, God's chosen people. The Israelites were a people that God had chosen, a people that he had decided to pour out his affections on, and thus a people that were to be set apart for himself. And this idea is clearly seen in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8a, for it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you. Now, in addition to the three terms being used to describe Israel in the Old Testament, more importantly, we find them being used to describe Jesus in the New Testament. In Luke 23, 35, he's referred to as the chosen one, albeit it is by the rulers in a mocking way. He is called the holy one by a demon in Mark 1, 24 and Luke 4, 34. And lastly, in Matthew 3, 17, he is called the loved one or beloved son by his heavenly father. I mean, what an amazing thing that we, a people who, according to Ephesians 2.13, were once far off, are now addressed in the same way as the Israelites. But more importantly, we are addressed in the same way as Jesus Christ. That is an amazing thing when we stop and think about that. I mean, really, it almost defies logic to ponder the fact that God, that God chose us. A bunch of rebellious, undeserving sinners. And that this God poured out his love on us while we were yet enemies and now through faith in the perfect person and work of jesus christ he brings us into his family he calls us his children and he makes us joint heirs together with christ 
I mean, that, that's just amazing. And yet, this is what the Bible teaches. This is, this is the shocking truth that is wrapped up in the pages of this book that we call the Bible. And the question that you need to ask yourself is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you really believe that through faith in Christ, your relationship with your heavenly father is fully restored, that your sins are completely forgiven, that as far as the east is from the west, God has removed your transgressions from you. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that your old manner of life has been put to death? That sin no longer has dominion over you? Do you believe that? Believers are chosen by God. They are set apart by God. They are loved by God. The problem is, is that far too many of us fail to live in light of these truths. It's like we have some kind of spiritual amnesia. We've gotten some kind of hit on the head and we almost forget who we really are in Christ. Now, I wanted to kind of help you get an idea of this. I wanted to illustrate this. So I talked to a, a couple different pastors on staff, which... We don't have very many, so just a couple guys. And I'm not going to tell you who they were, but let's just say that their initials are Tim Carnes and Ed Wildey. <laughs> now, one of the pastors, literally within minutes, was able to offer me this example, an illustration from Shakespeare's Henry V. The other was able to supply me with an illustration from The Lion King. Now, I'm not going to tell you who is who. I'm going to let you figure that one out yourselves. But I do love the diversity that we have on staff. It is a wonderful thing. Now, seeing as I was preaching in big church, I thought, you know, Brock, it's time to step it up a little bit, and you need to go and use that Henry V illustration because this is big church. But after looking at it, and trying to go over it a few times, I, I didn't get it. So, so you guys are going to get the Lion King illustration. Now realize, I am in no way embracing the Lion King for its spiritual theology. I'm only using a scene, hopefully to help us to better understand our need as believers to remember who we are in Christ. So here it is. Rafiki, the baboon, he's guiding, uh, guiding Simba. <laughs> guiding It's a great illustration when we get through this stuff, but it is good. He's guiding Simba to a spot where he says he's going to show him his dead father, Mufasa. So he tells him, look down here. Simba looks down into a pool of water, and he says, that's not my father. That's just my reflection. Rafiki says, no. Look, look harder. And he touches the water. And as it ripples, Simba's reflection changes to that of his father's. And Rafiki says, you see, 
He lives in you. And then Mufasa's ghost appears in the stars above, and this voice calls out, Simba! And Simba responds, Father! And Mufasa's ghost says, Simba, you have forgotten me. No, how, how could I? You have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. And Simba says, how can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. And Mufasa says, remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember. Mufasa called Simba to remember. To remember who he was, not so that he could stay where he was at and keep eating bugs and other disgusting insects with Timon and Pumbaa. That wasn't who he was. That wasn't who he was. He was the son of a king. And he needed to start acting like it. If you are a child of God, chosen, holy and beloved, then you are to adorn yourself with the virtues and the conduct that are befitting of this position. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul commands us to do. Picking things up in the latter part of verse 12 through 14, it says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, the first virtue that is always to be found in the wardrobe of a child of God is a heart of compassion. The word that is translated compassion here can also be rendered pity or mercy. And this compassion or mercy is to be heartfelt. It is to be something that you don't just kind of think about. It is to actually take over part of you. I mean, it is to move every part of your being. Okay, it's not just a little inkling. It is something that kind of just comes up within you. And Jesus was the perfect example of this type of compassion. Throughout Scripture, we find Jesus both feeling compassion and being moved by compassion. As Jesus was going throughout the cities and the villages, teaching and proclaiming the gospel, we're told in Matthew 9, 36, that as he saw the people... He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Before feeding the 5,000, we're told in Matthew 14, 14, that when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And again, as Jesus was passing by, two blind men that were crying out to him, crying for for him to restore their vision that their eyes might be opened. We're told in Matthew 24 that Jesus moved with compassion. He touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. You see, Jesus was never too busy to help those in need. His agenda was never so full that he didn't have time to meet a real need. Jesus loved people. And it was this love for others that filled his heart with compassion. 
The down and outers didn't turn his stomach. They stirred his heart. He didn't walk by people that were suffering and then, and then under his breath mutter the words, get a job. He didn't turn a deaf ear to the oppressed and weary. His heart wasn't cold to the needs and circumstances of the defenseless. But what about, what about you? When's the last time you slipped into the garment of a compassionate heart? When's the last time you saw a real need and went out of your way to do something about it? You know, there are so many worthwhile ministries that we could and should be involved with, things that we should be giving our time to, I mean, I think of Abort 73 and the work that they do to help save the lives of the most defenseless people group that I can think of, the unborn child. I think of Hope Again and Avenue's pregnancy clinics and the people groups that they are seeking to reach out. And I can't help but wonder if more could be done, if more people could be truly helped, if there were but a few more of us adorning a heart of compassion, a few more of us that were moved within our entire being to get up and to do something. I think of the lost people people without Christ. And I can't help but wonder how many of our hearts are cold and uncaring to the eternal damnation of these souls. Too many of us, the chosen, the holy and beloved of God are failing to clothe ourselves with hearts of compassion. Instead, we're dressing in the garments of the world. We're seeking to put on ease and comfort Ease and comfort just slide on so much easier than a compassionate heart. It's so much easier just to put those clothes on, but that is not what Jesus calls you to put on. Brothers and sisters, it should not be this way. The Christian is to adorn a heart of compassion because a heart of compassion is beautiful and it points others to the beauty and the glory of our wonderful and glorious Savior. A compassionate heart never grows out of style, no matter how long we wear it. It's always in fashion, in God's economy. Which brings us to the second virtue that we are commanded to put on, and that is kindness. This is a word that is closely related to uh, compassion in that it speaks of a gentle, gracious disposition. According to R. Kent Hughes, it was the great Archbishop Trench, the prime mover behind the Oxford English Dictionary, that tells us that the Greek word here translated kindness is a lovely word for a lovely quality. It was used to describe, describe wine, which has grown mellow with age and has lost its harshness. Jesus used the word to describe his yoke in Matthew 11.30 when he says, My yoke is easy. It's a quality that seeks to convey goodness and generosity towards others. And perhaps this is nowhere better seen than in God's character. I mean, this is who God is. He is good. The Psalms offer us numbers of examples of God's goodness. In Psalm 34, 8, David inspires us to taste. He says, come, taste and see the Lord. He is good. 
In Psalm 106.1, we're called to give thanks to the Lord for He is good. I mean, is there anyone that has truly tasted the Lord's goodness in His Son through salvation that can deny the kindness and the goodness of God? All those have been dealt with kindly by God. All those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they have been dealt kindly. And we are to show this kindness to others. But this doesn't come easy to anyone. It's not some personality trait that some of us either have or we don't have. No, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Which means that it is something that only believers can truly practice So let me ask you again, how are you doing in this area? Are you somebody that is clothing yourself in the virtue of kindness? Are you someone that is adorning this lovely quality? Or is it just not in your wardrobe? Let me hit home a little bit more. How kind are you with your spouse? Your children, your co-workers, your parents, your siblings. How kind are you when nobody from church is around? You know, we are living in the midst of some pretty crazy times. A lot of people have either lost their jobs or they're in the process of losing their jobs. And these tough economic times, I believe, will give us some of the greatest witnessing opportunities that we may ever have as we respond to people in kindness. As you and I put on the garment of kindness, we can be salt and light to a world that is having its God of money and possessions exposed for the false and deceitful God that it is. As we tell others about the goodness of God, even in the midst of tough economic times, we can expose them to the truth that will set them free. But brothers and sisters, we must, we must do this with kindness. We must never take a godly truth and communicate it in an ungodly manner. How much harm has been done to the cause of Christ by those who call themselves Christians and yet fail to clothe themselves with the virtue of kindness. Kindness is a timeless quality that will never go out of style. When we put it on, we represent Christ in a right way and thus bring Him the glory that is rightfully His. So remember, as God's chosen, holy, and beloved, He has called you to put on kindness having looked at the issue, the virtues of heartfelt compassion and kindness now we're ready to look at the third virtue that having been com- that uh, we have been commanded to put on and that being humility humility now in the ancient world this term had a very negative connotation as one commentator put it in profane greek literature the term occurs on only a few occasions and then usually in a derogatory sense of servility weakness or a shameful lowliness But this is not the case for the Christian. If anything, the word of God makes it perfectly clear to us 
that pride is the negative quality and humility is to be the thing that is greatly esteemed. In Proverbs 11, 2, it says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. And again, in Proverbs 16, 9, we are told it is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. In a sermon entitled Pride, Humility, and God, it was John Stott that spoke these words. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Humility is something that we must see as desirable because it was so plainly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go ahead and flip back in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, just so we can kind of get a a real good look at the humility of Jesus. I want you to be able to follow along with me as we look at this perfect example of true humility put on display in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And it is this humility that will eventually exalt Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ humbled himself. I mean, picture this. The God who simply spoke everything into existence, the God that has always been and will always be, the God who keeps everything together and works, keeps it working perfectly, steps down out of heaven to become like us. I mean, that is humility. When you look at where God is, And who he is. And what he stepped down to become is truly amazing. As followers of Christ, you and I are to become imitators of him. And that's where to seek to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are to live as Christ lived. Throughout the ages, humility has been frowned down upon because it's so contrary to our natural tendency to want to elevate ourselves at other people's expense. And I think we've all seen the effects of of those who clothe themselves in pride, right? We've all seen people that are arrogant, prideful, think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And it is... A garment, pride is a garment that is both sickening and shameful. And yet, brothers and sisters, there is no shame in humility. There is a genuine beauty that radiates from those who view themselves in comparison to God. 
So I ask you, how? How are you doing in this virtue? Are you somebody who is putting on humility? Or are you still sitting around in your favorite outfit of pride? Do you consider others as more important than yourself? Or as far as you're concerned, is it still all about you? If you've placed your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God. And as a child of God, chosen, holy, and beloved, He has called you to put on the beautiful garment of humility. Are you putting it on? That's what He calls you to. This is who you are in Christ. Which brings us to our fourth virtue, gentleness. The standard Greek lexicon defines the word in this way, gentleness, humility, or meekness. Jesus used this term of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine when he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, many of us can confuse gentleness with weakness, but to do this is to really misunderstand gentleness. For gentleness is is really kind of, to look at it this way, it is, it is strength under control, right? You are willfully choosing to not act out in an ungodly manner. You are choosing to respond gently rather than to just allow your emotions to kick in and for you just to kind of go off on somebody. So really, gentleness is strength under control. It is to have consideration for others uh, to put, or to possess a willingness to waive one's right. The gentle person in one is one that does not return evil for evil. He is not quick to defend his cause, but rather he looks for the interests of others. This is not something that comes naturally to any of us, but instead it too is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the work of God's Spirit in us that produces gentleness and keeps us from responding in a fleshly, ungodly way. Gentleness is not about being weak. It's about being meek. And as Jesus taught in His Sermon on the Mount, it is these who will inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. Gentleness is another virtue that is always in fashion for the believer. It is a necessary garment for those who are chosen, holy, and beloved of God. Therefore, we must wear it. We must wear it often so that we more accurately represent Christ in all that we say and do. Which leads us to the fifth virtue that we are, to command, that we are commanded to put on, and that is patience. This conveys an idea of long-suffering whereby we endure wrong and put up with the provoking conduct of others rather than letting people have it, giving them a piece of our mind or seeking to administer our, our own form of justice by seeking our own vengeance. The patient person is someone that does not get angry at others. As William Barclay puts it, this is the spirit which never loses its patience with its fellow men. Their foolishness and their unteachability never drive it to cynicism or despair. Their insults and their ill treatment never drive it to bitterness or wrath. Human patience is a reflection of the divine patience which bears with all our sinning and never casts us off. How easy it is to wear 
the earthly garment of resentment and revenge. How tempting it is to play judge and jury in the courthouses of our minds to take people through these mock trials by where they are given no chance of being heard because we are the judge and we've already determined that they are guilty and thus we want to deliver our verdict of guilty on them, a verdict that brings with it all of our judgment, all of our wrath, everything that we are able to bear down on them. We want to do that. I mean, how many relationships have been damaged because we failed to be patient, because we've taken matters into our own hands and we've determined, look, you know what? Enough is enough. Justice needs to be done now. It's going to start right now. Court is in session. Guilty. Here's the verdict. Brothers and sisters, God does not command us to put on the robe of a judge. But he does command us to put on patience. Paul takes his exhortation regarding patience a few steps further in verse 13 when he writes this. He says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Patience is the reaction we should have towards people as they sin against us. Patience with our family members. Patience with our church family members. Patience with our co-workers. Patience with our neighbors. Patience with our fellow man, especially when we're driving on the freeway. I mean, hardly a day will go by in which someone somewhere will not sin against you. And God is calling you to bear with them and forgive them Get this, because this is critical. Just as the Lord forgave you. But, but Brock, you don't know what they did. I mean, you don't know the pain they caused me. Just as the Lord forgave you. But, but Brock, they don't deserve to be forgiven. What they did was so evil, it was so malicious, that all they deserve is wrath. Just as the Lord forgave you. Ken Sandy, in his extremely useful book entitled The Peacemaker, tells us this about forgiveness. To forgive someone means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. Forgiveness is undeserved and cannot be earned. Forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sin and release the person from liability to punishment. This is precisely what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. He secured our forgiveness by taking on himself the full penalty of our sins. Remembering what he did to purchase our forgiveness should be our greatest incentive to release others from the penalty they deserve, end quote. Patience as displayed through the forbearance and forgiveness, is always appropriate attire for the chosen, holy, and beloved of God. As we put it on, we properly represent our glorious Lord and Savior. Which brings us to the sixth and final virtue that the believer is commanded to put on as evidenced in verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
The last virtue, however, is kind of a unique one, and the language that is used helps us to see this. The term beyond all these things can also be translated as in addition to, with the idea implied that what follows is chief or best. So here we've covered all of these virtues. Now there is this last one. This one is the chief one. This is the one that really is kind of the crowning one, if you would. It is supreme. It's the best. It's the most beautiful to the eye. In a sense, it is the garment that completes and encompasses all of the others. And love is that virtue. And this idea of love being supreme, being the supreme virtue, is a very biblical one. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, we're told this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love... I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It is love that is considered to be the motive power of faith in Galatians 5, 6. It is love that is said to be the fulfilling of the law in Romans 13, 9 through 10. It is love that is considered to be the supreme Christian grace, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, over and above faith and hope. God has called us to be a people that love one another. And as we put on this supreme virtue as we put on this most beautiful of the garments, the body of Christ is blessed. It's unified and perfected through that. That is all we're going to have time for this morning. It's never happened to me before, but uh, there is too much in here to just rush through. So the next time I preach in May sometime, I think 24th, I will finish everything up so that we can look at those last remaining verses, 15 through 17. But God's word, brothers and sisters, has shown us how to make a true and eternal fashion statement. But you need to understand that it is impossible to do unless you have trusted in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. Apart from the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will never be able to take off your old clothes and put on the new ones. Only as a person realizes that they are in poverty and thus walking around in rags can they begin to cry out to the king to give them new clothes. So if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I urge you to do that today. I beg you, I plead with you to not wait, to do it now. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. We do not know what tomorrow holds. So if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ or you want to talk to somebody about what that looks like, we want to encourage you to come and have a talk over there with one of our counselors. There'll be some people there a little later. If you are a Christian that is still finding yourself going back to the fashion of your old life, then let me challenge and encourage you to remember this great truth 
that you are chosen, holy, and beloved of God. You are a child of God. Therefore, go and live like a child of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the truth that it contains. And I thank you for allowing us all to be able to come together this afternoon, Lord, to hear from your word. I pray that you were glorified through it. I pray that you will use this message, Lord, to work in all of our hearts to remind us of all that is ours in Christ. Help us to be amazed at all that you've done to just lavish your your loving kindness upon us. Father, help us to not keep wallowing around in the mud puddles, but instead help us to embrace the newness of life that you've given us in Christ. Help us to adorn ourselves with those, those garments that are beautiful and that will point others to our great and gracious Savior. Father, help us to live like who we are. If we are a child of yours, help us to act like it so that we might make much of you and your son. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.